CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I thank you all for being with us today. We have a Another special edition of our show today that I've been looking forward to for a very, very long time. And, and I want to say at the start, uh, the topics that we're going to discuss today were actually inspired by a listener who sent me an email shortly after the first time on the show our panel discussed uh, the Republican effort to uh, demonize so-called critical race theory. And the woman who wrote me asked a fascinating question. She said, we're not confronting our past uh, the way we need to. How have other countries, Germany uh, in particular, how has Germany confronted uh, the dark history of the Holocaust, Nazi Germany? Um, and, and I thought that was an important question. It also uh, resonated particularly strongly with me because during uh, a visit to Berlin, about 10 years ago at this point, I was, as an American Jew, overwhelmed to see the many, many ways in which the German government has acknowledged and used the Holocaust and, and, and Nazi Germany as a teaching tool uh, to memorialize uh, people who were lost in uh, the uh, Holocaust. And um, I, there are so many, there are, according to some reports, as many as 2,000 various uh, sites teaching tools, sculptures, and the like uh, dedicated to uh, helping people remember uh, that past. The biggest one, of course, is an enormous uh, piece of uh, sculptural art, the uh, Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. Uh, it's a sprawling site, but um, one of the most powerful and poignant is a piece called um, Stumbling Stones. An artist named Gunter, Gunter Demnig uh, back in the late, in the middle of the 90s, started placing at the locations where Jews were arrested and taken away what were little concrete uh, blocks faced with brass, and in each of those little stumbling blocks, he inscribed the names of the people who were arrested at that site, the dates that they were arrested, where they were to where to the location they were transported to the concentration camp typically they were sent to and what their fate was and you'll find those all over germany um and you just as 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 gunter demnig wanted you stumble across them a daily reminder uh, you walk through neighborhoods um there is another remarkable uh, piece um, at, at another, just in the middle of a neighborhood called the Deserted Room. It consists of a metal table, sort of like a kitchen table, and two chairs. But one of the chairs is overturned, lying on its side. The suggestion being that the people who were there were disrupted suddenly and taken away uh, by, the, by the Nazis. So there, the, the question becomes... Why do we seem to be a little bit more reluctant to deal with our history um, when countries like Germany, South Africa, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, have tried to stare their dark history square in the face? Let me introduce the panel, and then i got a couple more things I want to talk about as we get the conversation going. It's Wednesday, which means that Greg Bluestein 
political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is here. Greg, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I am too. Uh, Michael Thurman, CEO of the DeKalb County of of DeKalb County, uh, joins us. And uh, Michael, we always love having you on the show. Um, you, of course, have spent a lot of time uh, behind the scenes looking at how Stone Mountain can be redefined, reframed, so that it tells an accurate picture of the Confederate past. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think your contributions to the show today will be so important. How are you? Really thrilled to be here, not as a politician, but as an aspiring historian. How about that? That's here? right. That's right. We we should point out that you, in fact, are a historian, um, and and you've got uh, you've written about the history of uh, the Athens area where you grew up, and I believe you're continuing to research uh, uh, Oglethorpe, right? Uh, the the abolitionist who founded the Georgia colony, right? Absolutely. Look at this, Bluestein. <laughs> I see it. A couple hundred pages. Got, he, he is holding up to the WebEx, which unfortunately we can't broadcast. We're not capable of doing that. The manuscript that he's been working on on a book on Oglethorpe. Uh, Stan Deaton is with us. Stan knows about things like that. He is the senior historian at the Georgia Historical Society and joins us from their headquarters today in Savannah. Hi, Stan. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Sure. And Hiram Maxim uh, is with us, a professor of German studies and linguistics at Emory University. Um, Hiram, when I when I mentioned all of the sites that you can see in Berlin, certainly, but across Germany, um, it is a remarkable thing to travel to the country and see the way in which Germans uh, have decided they need to confront their past. Yes. Yes, yes. Are you there? No, no. Yes. Sorry. Yes. <coughs> Thanks for having me. And there's no question about that. That um, I think uh, over the last 50 years, I think it's important to note that the Germany did not start addressing its past right away after the war. It took some time. Um, but yes, certainly for the last 50 years plus, uh, they've uh, there's been a concerted effort, uh, both at the upper levels of, of the government, but also perhaps even more so even at the grassroots level, which has been interesting to follow as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. It really wasn't until the 60s that, that the German government itself and, and um, others in Germany decided it was time that they looked square in the face of the Holocaust. Um, Greg, let me start, though, with this. I, I, we can talk about the Republicans demonizing critical race theory, um, and that's fine. But the reality <coughs> of it is that our Americans' refusal who want to look at the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, of efforts to suppress, in some cases, violently, the rights of African Americans uh, to vote. Um, it goes well beyond just critical race, the, the demonization of crim cr critical race theory, Greg. Yeah, and look, the professor can talk about this, but, but I, what, what struck me as I was reading some of the reading materials that you sent out, some of the columns, some of the, the research, was that in Germany, there wasn't this instant reckoning either after World War II, but it took, it took a few decades. It took the televised trial of Eichmann and other Nazi war criminals to lead to, to, to this broader reckoning that we still really have it in the U.S. And one of the pieces you sent, it said, essentially, imagine if we had stumbling stones around downtown Atlanta, around Savannah, around uh, Georgia communities saying, here was where so-and-so lived before 
uh, where so-and-so toiled for decades of, in slavery and their descendants now live wherever. And it really, it really got me. That, that sort of passage really got me. And, and also another part where, where it said part of the reckoning in Germany was that when each of these stumbling stones were set, uh, often there was efforts to find descendants of, of those mm. Jews or others who were Roma or whoever was taken from their, you know, abducted, uh, imprisoned, uh, executed, um, to find their descendants so that the local community could see them firsthand. And as someone who's, who's gone to, um, you know, who's visited remnants of Holocaust uh, of, of concentration camps and, and others and who has relatives just like you who were who were killed in the Holocaust. It really, it really kind of helped me translate what's happening, what happened there to what could be happening here in terms of a, a reckoning in, in the U S. Um, Mike Thurman, I want to read something that uh, Michelle Nor Norris wrote for the Washington post. So bear with me. And then I would love to have you and everybody else on the panel comment on it. Um, a few weeks ago, she wrote a piece uh, in which he talked about uh, the American reluctance to confront our darker history. And, and she starts it by saying that it was shortly after the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened on the National Mall that she came across someone who had been to the mall and asked her, Michelle, a question. Why, the woman said, were all the exhibits that visitors first encountered dedicated to slavery? Among other things, she was referring to a constructed cabin built by former slaves from Maryland and a statue of Thomas Jefferson next to a wall with the names of more than 600 people he owned. The woman went on, Michelle reports. Couldn't the exhibits begin with more uplift? She suggested the museum should steer visitors toward more positive stories right from the start so that if someone were tired or short on time, quote, slavery could be optional. And then finally, Michelle writes this. Her question was irksome, but it didn't surprise me. I've heard versions of the can't we skip past slavery question countless times before. Each time serves as a reminder that America has never had a comprehensive and widely embraced national examination of slavery and its lasting impact. Mike Thurman? Well, actually... They are, and I have friends who are African-American who resist the idea of, of talking about or thinking about or discussing uh, slavery in America during that era. So what I, my perspective is this, uh, initially the lost cause narrative was created to blunt and dilute the narrative or at least America's reckoning uh, with slavery, primarily uh, by the descendants and or former rebels who fought the war. And they were very successful in doing this. And it was not really to maybe 100 years after the war ended that American historians of all colors really began to engage and research and generate uh, 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 books and other articles that looked at slavery uh, not from the lost cause narrative, but one based on fact and not necessarily fiction. So what you're really seeing is that for the first hundred years after the war, the, lost, the, 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 the people who lost the war won the victory after the war by creating a narrative that mitigated the role that slavery played, not just in the Civil War, but even in you know the founding of the nation. 
And it was only a century later uh, that we began as a nation and professional historians began to tell the truth. And so the museum actually starts where we are now, but it's in a reaction to what preceded the creation of the museum was the effort to minimize the role of slavery and the whole notion of the loyal slave and the, and the benevolent slave owner that really dominated not uh, American history for over a century after the Civil War. So, Stan, um, it's interesting that on the day we have this discussion, there are two stories in the news that relate to this in some ways. Uh, first, Emory University announced yesterday that they were going to remove and, and uh, their, uh, everything that relates to the racist past of university. They're going to change the names of buildings uh, that uh, were named after slaveholders. They're going to take other steps to make sure that they no longer honor uh, the, uh, the, the racist past of the university. And at the same time, uh, we now have had a vote in the U.S. House to remove it from Statuary Hall, where each state, as you well know, Stan, is um, allowed to put in, up two statues in honor of uh, individuals from the state they want to have in the hall. Uh, they're going to remove uh, any number of statues that also affirm the racist past. In Georgia, Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederacy's statue, will be removed. So that's removal, Stan. And that's that we think many of us applaud, but it's that's different than addition rather than subtraction. Yes. Yeah, it is. And, you, and obviously you could do and have done shows about statues and whether those are history or they're just public art with a very political message, which is, I think, what they are. But I mean, part of what we're dealing with here is I think our our collective public perceptions of what history is and what it ought to be for many people particularly many white Americans, history is something that should celebrate the past and should instill patriotism. That's what they think history is. Um, but it should be, quite frankly, a happy place, a place where you go and celebrate our American founders or what is unique about the American Republic, um, and particularly with the, with the ongoing debate about how to teach children, that there's, there's this debate about that's what history should be. Obviously, for a lot of Americans, history is not a happy place. Um, I don't know how you would talk about German history without acknowledging this monstrous thing that happened in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and Hiram can talk about that, obviously. But um, I think that that we've always had a difficult time reckoning with the darker parts of our past. Um, even the people who were living through the antebellum period, right? They, they dealt with the gag rule in the U.S. Congress about petitions that had to do with slavery. Um, you know, one historian many years ago said that race is the third rail of American history. It, it is absolutely essential to drive the American historical narrative, but we don't dare touch it. Uh, it, and, it and it continues to literally shock us. Um, but at the same time, I think it is very important that we understand, I think, that a self-governing republic that, like ours, that relies on an educated citizenry ought to be able to have an honest discussion about our past without it hurting our feelings. Hiram, uh, let's unpack a little more uh, what you said at the beginning of the show about Germany coming to its uh, realization they had to, that Germans had to confront their past a little bit more. What, what led to that? Why? I mean, we can understand that in the immediate years after the war, Germany had been defeated. It was in, in many of its cities lay in ruins. Um, and, 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 and the country was still smarting 
from this terrible, terrible uh, losses that it took. Um, what changed the narrative? Why, why did the, the Germans decide they needed to confront the past? Yeah, to a large degree, it was, it was generational. Um, and so you have, you know, a war, uh, a country, as you said, uh, in ruins. Um, uh, you need to how, rebuild the country. You need teachers. You need judges. You need um, all the administration to, to move the country forward. And you have to turn to the people who are there. And many, of course, had ties to the Nazi party. Um, but then you've got a, a younger generation, uh, those uh, born during the war or shortly after the war, who were going through a serious uh, uh, democratization, uh, denazification, even some called it Americanization uh, period, um, largely led by the occupying forces, with the U.S. being one of the, the leading forces there. So kind of the irony there is that, in many ways, this generation that came of age post-war um, largely uh, influenced heavily by American policies uh, governing um, uh, what's taught in schools, uh, how the, the government's going to be um, shaped. Um, and so America leading the way in some sense, um, a country that has not dealt with its past, um, uh, lead, uh, builds a generation that is, is eager to, to confront its past. And so, um, as Greg said rightly, in the 60s, things really started to take off. Um, the, the, the trials of Nazi war criminals, Adolf Eichmann, perhaps the most noted, um, uh, this put it back on the front page. Um, and then you had the, this, the, this, this younger generation. Of course, the 60s was a time of, of tumult anyway, um, where they began to, to ask, you know, what, what did dad do? What was granddad doing during these times um, as they were coming of age in school, asking these questions? They learned about democracy. They were learned about um, uh, some of the freedoms that uh, this democracy gives them, and they became eager to ask these questions. And so it really became a very much a generational thing um, that also uh, tapped into the zeitgeist um, of the 60s as well. Um, um, and so, yeah, it really it took this time, and, and certainly it's still an ongoing process. You know, uh, by no means, I think there are very few Germans who would say this was period, this, this is over with. Um, we're still seeing uh, uh, efforts today. Um, the the, the, the Stolperstein of the Stumbling Stones is still an ongoing process. Um, it's expanding beyond Germany. There, uh, I think there are mm -hmm. there are stumbling stones in um, at least 20 different countries. Um, and so, um, and I should note too that this is a, a, a project. This one project is is one that relies heavily on private donors. So it's not necessarily state supported. Um, it will, uh, um, and it's often initiated by uh, um, descendants of those who were deported um, and then killed in concentration camps who want to, uh, um, and so it's, it's a, again, this, this grassroots focus is what really, I think, um, is notable in many ways about, about, the, about the process that Germany's going through. Greg, part of what we, we know happened when, when uh, Hiram talks about it being generational is we know at a certain point uh, the the children now that grown and very much old uh, uh, children uh, of uh, those who were involved in the war in the German uh, uh, war uh, army and 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 also involved in other uh, uh, aspects of what was happening in Germany at the time they started asking their parents questions what were you doing in the war were you part of the extermination of the Jews. Did you, as a soldier, were you involved in that effort? Were you, you know, they started asking these questions of their own parents, Greg. Yeah, their parents and grandparents. And 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 yeah. from the research, uh, it looks like, you know, there, there is something of a split too 
in the bigger cities, there's more of a a, a, a willingness to confront this because um, it seems much more in the abstract. But in small towns where everyone, you know, everyone knows the leaders in the community, um, there, you know, there is a little bit more of a re reluctance. Um, there's also a sort of a, um, you know, a reluctance to put a central let's say museum, like, like we have in the US, there's several museums. I mean, there's thousands of exhibits all over, all over Germany, but there, there's, a, there's a concern about creating something that could be seen as a shrine um, to neo-Nazism in Germany too. And I was struck by that when I was a visitor there looking for, we went to many sites, we went to, we went to um, you know, where the, the former SS uh, camps were and, and there was museums there, the, the topography of terror, I think it was called, um, but there was no big, huge central museum where you could kind of just um, see the ins and outs of everything in, in World War II and Germany's role in World War II. And I think part of that reason was because they, the authorities were really reluctant about, about creating a, a magnet for neo-Nazism. Michael? Well, and true, as I look at it, too, the, the, the horrors of the Holocaust uh, forced Germany because I still watch the History Channel, one of my favorite channels, of course. And every day you can, because of a film and video of World War II, you revisit that horror, the, the, the industrialized murder of over six million people. And so it keeps it current, uh, not just for Germany. Uh, but for the entire world. And the only thing I, I really compare it to, the, we've seen major shifts in how America looks at slavery and, and racism, but the trigger was a video of George Floyd's murder. So one of the things that helps uh, uh, people evolve and understand or become more inquisitive is the fact that it remains current, i.e. with the history of uh, 400 years of enslavement of, uh, in America, there is no video. That research had to be created and then disseminated. So these things are affecting modern societies in different ways, but what impacts me most, and let me say this, when I look at the World War II video of the rise of uh, Hitler in the Third Reich, I don't watch Hitler. I watch the crowds who came to cheer him. And it's amazing to see the men and women and the children uh, crying and how they elevated him and, and worshipped him uh, as a demigod. So that tells me that this issue was way beyond Hitler. He had basically infiltrated the entire population, uh, a, a great percentages of it, uh, throughout the nation. And I think that helps to bring the reckoning. It wasn't just one man. is that we all became a part of this destruction of human life. Stan? Well, uh, you know, one of the things I think that uh, we have going on in our own history is, um, and the reason that this has sort of come to loggerheads right now, I guess, if you will, is the idea that America, American history, that we created something unique in history in 1776, a self-governing republic, which was something new in the world, where we said we the people will govern ourselves and we will draw our leaders from ourselves. Um, the reality is that many of those leaders, if not most of those leaders at that time, of course, were owners of other human beings. So we're faced with this dichotomy of at the same time admiring these people for what they were able to do. But at the same time, I think it, it, trying to come to grips with, uh, as Samuel Johnson said, the, the noted English writer, how is it that we hear the loudest cries for liberty from the drivers of slaves? 
It's been called the American paradox. In my mind, it is what makes our story so unique, that, that slavery and liberty marched hand in hand together out of 1776. And I don't think you can understand American history until you come to grips with that. Not to celebrate it, not to commemorate it, but to simply understand. And I think, as Michael said, if the generation that had fought the Civil War that came out of it, if they had even remotely tried to come to grips with what had happened with slavery, which they themselves, of course, thought they were not responsible for. This was something that had been foisted on them, an evil that they simply uh, didn't know how to get rid of, that they told themselves for generations. Or if the next generation, as Hiram has said and Greg has said, if they had tried to come to grips. But instead, of course, they doubled down. They continued to minimize the horrors of slavery, the injustice of it. Uh, they instituted laws to prevent African-Americans from becoming full citizens. The farther away we get from that, there is a sense that why do I need to not only know about this, learn about it, I bear no responsibility for it, but I think at all of which may or may not be true, but I think the problem with that is if we shut down conversation about it or education about it, we then become complicit in the very thing we say we're not guilty of. The, the more remote we are in some ways, the more comfortable we should be in being able to talk about this and acknowledging, if we can admit that the American Revolution and the Constitution and the Civil War have long-lasting legacies that still affect us today, as they obviously do, we ought to be able to admit that this other institution, which existed for millennia, certainly has a long reach. Whether or not we are responsible for it or, or should feel any guilt is in some ways beside the point. That really sets us up for the next portion of the conversation that I'm really looking forward to having. But let me get a break out of the way right now. Before I do, though, let me make, let me make a disclaimer here. And, and in fact, I'm going to draw on the same words that Michelle Norris used in her essay in the Washington Post uh, in terms of my own feelings about this show today. Here's what she said. Here's what I believe. We are not suggesting that slavery and the Holocaust are in the same vein. They are each distinctly diabolical events in history, but we compare them because it sheds light not on the comparative evils, they are different evils, but instead the contrasting ways in which we have sought redemption. So please spare me the tweets, spare me the Facebook posts in which you uh, suggest we're saying that the people who don't want to talk slavery are the same as Nazis. They are different evils. They are both worth exploring. We'll be right back. The AJC's Greg Bluestein, Georgia Historical Society Senior Historian Stan Deaton, Professor Hiram Maxim, a Professor of German Studies at Emory University, and DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman joined me for this conversation today. Michael, as I was thinking about this show and doing some research for it, it occurred to me, look, at all the you've done so much to try to help reframe the uh, narrative around Stone Mountain Park, and it's terribly important that we figure out a way to not be honoring the Confederacy with one of the largest monuments in the country uh, to the lost cause. But, but it's interesting to me because that conversation is incredibly important, of course, and you've been involved with it, as I say. But in a way, it doesn't address head-on the horrors of what slavery really were and the fact that the people who fought that were, war, let's talk much more directly about what slavery as an institution really was. 
Well, absolutely. And so I have advocated that what needs to occur at Stone Mountain is really just to tell the truth about the carving, uh, how it came about. In fact, that it originated and was supported initially by uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I had the chance to speak to a, a history class at North Georgia College recently, and the students I talked to had no idea that the Klan had any involvement uh, in helping to finance or uh, envision the carving on Stone Mountain. And it's something Bill Stevens has taken up that we just, first of all, tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, intelligent people will be able to disseminate, understand the truth, and hopefully learn uh, from the truth for positive and negative reasons. Uh, one of the things that I think needs to occur, though, uh, taking down the statutes and Confederate monuments is one step. What we have to be about now is what will we replace them with, it, not just in terms of monuments, but the history themselves. Uh, one of the things I've come to understand, and this will be news to many, not all white uh, antebellum Southerners supported slavery. There were whites who opposed slavery. So if you take down the slave owner, should not we also acknowledge that there were whites who supported uh, Africans who were seeking uh, freedom to fight for their freedom and to fight for the freedom of their people? So that's what's really taking place. This is step one. I I believe that step two will be able to acknowledge that not all whites supported slavery uh, in the South. There were whites who supported the Union. There were whites who did not own slaves. There were whites who supported uh, the uh, emancipation of enslaved uh, blacks in Georgia and all through the country. So what we have to be about is moving away from, and one of the things about history, basically we study uh, prominent and successful men and women. That's how history is written around great men and women, if you really think about it. Uh, it's the founding fathers, it's George Washington, it's Abraham Lincoln, and so forth. What we have to do as a nation is to focus more attention, not just on those who were victimized by enslavement, but also those who heroes and sheroes who fought against it. And there are scores, untold thousands and not millions of people beyond Harriet Tugman, beyond Frederick Douglass, who engaged in that liberation struggle. So this will help the discussion, too, where you're not just talking about the victimization of a race, but just like history's written, let's lift up those uh, black men and women who engaged in this fight for freedom and equality even before the modern civil rights movement. Well, Stan, I think uh, in many ways, uh, Michael is... Uh, uh, he isn't doing this directly, but uh, he's offering you a challenge, uh, which is, I mean, the Georgia Historical Society has done remarkable work across the state in memorializing important places, <coughs> events uh, that, uh, that are part of Georgia's history. Is there more work to be done? It, I, I would look at it from the other point of view. I mean, Michael talks about that. The second step is saying, gee, not all white Southerners were slave owners or, or upheld, but believed in the institution of slavery. But do we need to do more in the way of the stumbling stone sort of uh, uh, memorial to acknowledge and give people an understanding of what happened in Georgia uh, uh, when, when slaves were commonplace? I mean, I think that uh, one of the things the Georgia Historical Society has done, you know, we're responsible for the state's historical marker program. We have something called the, the Georgia, um, our civil rights uh, 
initiatives uh, and and we have put up markers and thinking about the civil rights movement broadly that expands way back before 1954 and brown versus board things that happened during the reconstruction period things that happened in the early 20th century the importance of the black church as a community where as michael said leaders came out of in places where they were allowed to cultivate leadership and we have worked really hard over the past 20 years to put up historical markers that will educate our citizens about these aspects of African-Americans pushing to become full citizens in, Amer in, in the American Republic. Um, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the stories I think that does need to be told that is absolutely tied to Mike, Mike, Michael's um, uh, talking about Stone Mountain is the Reconstruction story. What happened in Georgia? For a long time, Reconstruction got swept up into the lost cause narrative. It, it was this misguided attempt to make former slaves political social economic citizens uh, and and white people had to rise up and overthrow this when in fact many historians look at this as the first civil rights movement that was overcome by white supremacy that is a story that we're just beginning to tell publicly and um, obviously stories about lynching that happened in Georgia um, you know uh, Hiram and Greg were talking about how it's easier in some metropolitan areas to remember really dark moments in our past. And a lot of these lynchings took place in smaller communities that are obviously still very reluctant to come <clears> to grips with these things. Many white people in those communities don't even know they happened. Um, many black citizens there know uh, and for years were silent about it. This was the great divide. And it is painful to go and put a historical marker in places like Noonan where the Sam Hose uh, tragedy, the lynching occurred there. Um, but it's a conversation that I think we as a community and as a state need to have, that if we can't come to terms with these moments and things, that, how do these things happen? Literally human beings being burned alive just 100 years ago, a little more than that. This is part of our state's history, too. And I think this is part of the collective uh, memorialization, painful though it may be. I would just add, too, real quick, Bill, that in Charleston, they had a conversation about putting up a Holocaust memorial. Um, and they did. There's no memorial, or there wasn't. If there is one there now, someone will correct me about slavery. And many people thought this was a historical sleight of hand, that the idea that somehow imagine a German community memorializing American slaves, but not being willing to come to terms with what the tragedy that happened at their own front door, that this was some sort of historical amnesia on a massive scale. And I think it sort of epitomizes what we're dealing with here. Uh, Hiram, it is worth noting as we go through this conversation that uh, Germany, despite the fact that it has confronted its dark past, uh, has seen a very, very uh, uh, major rise in neo-Nazism of uh, white supremacist uh, activity in the country. So even at, even in a country that's doing its best to remind its uh, its citizens about the evils of the past, uh, you can't wipe out uh, uh, the movement toward uh, uh, more uh, more ominous uh, uh, thinking. No, exactly. And I think you know the most noticeable uh, way this has happened is, is the political party that actually is currently the largest opposition party in the federal parliament. Uh, the alternative for Germany is called uh, AFD, um, and they definitely have exploited um, uh, German's attempts to reckon with its past um, to mobilize uh, supporters. Um, arguing that um, we need to honor uh, our, our, our fellow Germans, uh, their contributions to our past. Um, some of these memorials they point to calling them a disgrace. Um, and so it definitely has been exploited, even perhaps weaponized, um, the degree to which perhaps we are seeing in this country a little bit with how critical race theory has been lined up as a political uh, a weapon. 
for upcoming elections. Um, so it definitely has um, uh, been been used in Germany. I think the one thing that maybe uh, some solace is that um, because of the multi-party system in the German parliament, um, we're able to perhaps keep track. And so currently the, uh, um, the, the last national elections in 2017, this party received roughly 13 percent of the national vote. Um, and that is more or less the way it's been uh, stayed that way nationally. And so there's, a, I think, a, a way through the German parliamentary system to actually keep a closer eye on the degree of support this party has. But no question, they have exploited um, this discussion about coming to terms with this past for its own political, for political gain. Um, and I should also quickly say it was kind of tab taboo for quite a long time to discuss Germans as um, victims. Uh, um, and so mm -hmm. there, um, uh, only really in the 80s did this come into play um, where people began to, to open discussions about whether or not Germans also were victims of national socialism. Um, mm -hmm. And even and more recently, just the uh, features of flying the German flag, which of course is commonplace in this country, that it's the American flag, not the German flag. Um, um, this, households wouldn't do that. Um, that is now a bit more commonplace um, so you are seeing shifts with how people are uh, um, kind of viewing the nation and national pride and even patriotism um, as and now subsequent generations begin to kind of uh, voice voice their views. Uh, thank you for that. Greg, uh, you, uh, when uh, Stan was talking about uh, uh, Charleston, you uh, sent to us all a, a link reminding us that there is some effort in Charleston to acknowledge the city's place in the slave trade. Yeah, and it's actually, um, uh, not, there's not a, uh, there's, there's a slavery museum in Charleston uh, about the slave transatlantic slave trade. Um, but I, he's right, Stan's right, there's not a um, there's not a giant, you know, sort of all-inclusive, all-encompassing memorial there. Um, there have been recent efforts, and my family comes from, um, both, my, both my parents come from South Carolina. Um, there has been a recent effort to reconcile the Black-Jewish relationship in Charleston, too, which is really fascinating, um, because both those minority communities really uh, forged an alliance um, you know, post-World War II, especially. Um, but I also wanted to mention, too, as we were listening about the critical race theory um, and how this translates into today's debate, one of the things that strikes me as a reporter covering all this is that whenever we start writing about critical race theory, we ask, we ask the people who are critical of it what the definition is, and we can't get a straight definition. I mean, it changes depending on who you talk to. And that's part of the problem that we're talking about here with a ban or restrictions or limits or, or you know, the State Board of Education's decision uh, to try to uh, rein in teaching of critical race theories is, A, we're not sure how, how, how much it's even taught in Georgia public schools right now, and B, we're not even sure um, what it really is other than a bugaboo right now in, in conservative media. Oh, I want to follow up on something Stan and Greg mentioned. Uh, early, and this is my really my personal opinion. Uh, obviously, this reckoning uh, with our history uh, around enslavement of Africans and, and African Americans is critical. But I think it would be a mistake to just to focus on that and not focus also on black agency. Uh, the fact that throughout this uh, era of horror of enslavement, there were Africans and African Americans who resisted on multiple levels successfully against the attempt to enslave uh, blacks. 
if if we only look at this one side of the ledger, the horrors, the victimization, I think we do uh, African Americans in the history of our nation a disservice. Uh, even with the Holocaust, uh, think of the Jewish resistance in Poland. Think of what's emphasized when you look at the narrative of the Jews who, despite overwhelming odds, continue to fight uh, for their freedom and their dignity and their humanity. Uh, even in, in, in causes where it was almost hopeless, uh, there in Poland where the uh, Russians refused to come in and assist them, the uprising. So to me, that is inspiring that no matter how great the evil might be, that people who are righteous and of goodwill can overcome. And that, to me, tells a more complete story. That uh, Michael, I got to get to a break, but what we're hearing from you, the thread through much of what you've said today, is a rejection of the notion of, of assuming 100% the identity of victim, whether it's African Americans who and enslavement, whether it's Jews and the Holocaust, you are rejecting this notion that these are just defined as nothing more than victims of, of, uh, of other people's uh, uh, ill intents, right? Absolutely. From the moment, and, and, and some argue that uh, emancipation began when the first enslaved African resisted, uh, resisted on the march from the interior, resisted on the slave ship. There was so many more on-board slave rebellions than any historian has ever really documented or just beginning to document. So to me, that tells the story, particularly for young people who are still facing challenges that if you commit yourself consciously, you can overcome. Okay, we got to get to our final break of the show. We'll do that and be back with more on Political Rewind. Um, I've gotten notes from several of you, including our own senior producer, Amelia Brock, uh, pointing out that when we talk about some of the dark uh, moments of history or periods of history in Georgia, we should not forget the indigenous people. We should not forget the way in which Native Americans were driven from their land here, the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears and others, and that's exactly correct. Uh, we should do that. Uh, Greg, um, it is important to bring this around again, I think, to current events in politics right now, starting with Donald Trump's 1776 commission, which looked at, was basically a response to the New York Times 1619 project, which essentially tried to say, let's not forget that a central factor of American history is, uh, was uh, slavery and, the, uh, uh, and racism against African Americans. But the 1776 Commission essentially came back and even said that the civil rights movement uh, really, in the long run, was not a positive movement because even the civil rights movement turned to uh, uh, ideas that were contrary to the lofty ideals of the founding fathers who really believed in equal treatment for all. And Greg, one of the things that's happening now as Republicans condemn critical race theory is that they're suggesting that our children shouldn't be exposed to ideas that make them feel guilty, that they're oppressors, uh, that in some way they're responsible uh, for the past uh, uh, wrongdoings of generations far be 
for them. I mean, it's, it's, and, and I even got an email from a listener during the show who said just that. I'm not unafraid to address slavery. I just don't want to be guilty as, you know, held accountable for it. Yeah, look, it's it's sort of a part of a broader effort to suggest that looking inward, looking critically at our history means that we're unpatriotic, means that we're not proud of our our country, of who we are. Um, And, you know, I want to go back to something that that Chief Thurman said, um, which was, you know, looking, I grew up going to religious schools here in Atlanta, religious Jewish schools, and there was a conscious effort from our from our teachers to make sure that we didn't grow up as Jews feeling victim. Like we, we learned about Warsaw Uprising and guerrillas who went to guerrilla warfare in the woods of Czechoslovakia and, you know, who fought back in ways big and small against Nazi oppression. So we didn't grow up thinking that we were kind of sheeps led to the slaughter as, as a Jewish people. And and I think it's the same sort of reckoning that that people who are promoting critical race theory want to make sure that that, that America knows, you know, a we, we want to learn from our history, uh, our students. But but, you know, and how those systemic inequalities do still shape society today from jobs, from economic structures, just just from every really every ta- uh, aspect of, of of modern day living. And again, this was something that might not have been super controversial a decade ago. Um, it's a phrase that many of us are just hearing um, for the first time in the last few months as it became uh, the a favorite, uh, uh, you know, stomping ground in conservative media. Um, but something that, you know, that many of us pr- learned in schools without even thinking twice about it uh, over the last few decades. Um, Stan, uh, an essay in this morning's New York Times had one line that really stood out to me. The writer said, uh, uh, history is not therapy and discomfort is a part of growing up. Stan? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the challenge for teachers and the challenge for teaching young people is how do you explain what appears to them and what appears to all of us now from the vantage point of where we sit on top of the mountain we think we've reached, right? We're always the pinnacle of history. How did these things happen? We wouldn't do those things today. We wouldn't carry out the Holocaust. We wouldn't carry out slavery. How do you explain that human behavior in the past? That is the great challenge of, of history. And I think you, a good teacher will obviously do it. The, the, the challenge is to create understanding of the past, not to condemn it, not to make anyone feel guilty. Um, because no one today has owned slaves. Slavery has been over in this country for 156 years. But if we don't understand the mentality that perpetuated it and perpetuated Jim Crow and made the civil rights movement possible, um, and as Michael rightly said, it was the enslaved themselves who ended slavery. They weren't given anything. Every every single action they took to push back against this institution uh, led to that eventual result. But I think we have to be able to understand that. And history is not a zero-sum game. It doesn't mean if I'm teaching you about slavery that I can't teach you about Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson or many other people that we consider heroes of the past. I think it's what makes it so fascinating is trying to understand the complexity of human beings, the great things they're capable of, the horrible things they're capable of, and how that lives within us. And I think that explaining that to young children uh, yes, slavery doesn't exist anymore. The Holocaust doesn't exist. But if we don't come to grips with how those things happened, we're not doing our jobs. 
Really well said. Thank you for that. Hiram, I want to start with you on this and give everybody a quick go at it before we run out of time. Desmond Tutu was asked at one point back when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was uh, at the heart, doing its, its hardest work in South Africa at the end of after apartheid, why he thought it was important. Here's just a little of what he said. All South Africans were less than whole because of apartheid. Blacks suffered years of cruelty and oppression while many privileged whites became more uncaring, less compassionate, less humane, and therefore less human. Yet during these years of suffering and inequality, each South African's humanity was still tied to that of all others, white or black, friend or enemy. For our nation to heal and become a more humane place, we had to embrace our enemies as well as our friends, the same is true the world over. Those words are remarkable and seem so far from where we're at right now, Hiram. Yeah, no, I think the, um, I mean, Germany has has done that, although there has been some criticism that a, 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 a good portion of its reckoning um, has happened among Germans and not consulting with uh, Jews um, and how this could be handled. Um, um, but I, I think um, uh, Germany has done a, a, its uh, a, a admiral effort in confronting its past. Um, and I think more recently, these, these stumbling stones have been an effort to engage with the Jewish community um, more so than it was perhaps in the early stages of addressing its past. Um, uh, discussions about uh, the, the topography of terror museum, um, um, discussions about the memorial of murdered Jews um, have been an effort to include more of the Jewish community. Um, but I think, think there's still work to be done there um, so that uh, it is more of an inclusive discussion at times in Germany. Michael, before we run out of time, how do you apply those words of Tutu to America today? Uh, Dr. King said something quite similar. It, you know, if you think about his life, he freed uh, black people from discrimination but he also liberated and freed whites from having to discriminate. So it gave whites the chance to develop friendships and relationships with African-Americans that they may not have been able to otherwise. So really, all of us were liberated because of his efforts and the efforts of those who worked with him. Um, we are completely out of time for today's show. Um, uh, Michael Thurman, Stan Deaton, Hiram Maxim, thank you for being here. Greg Bluestein, you as well. Look. Greg, in the weeks and months to come, we're going to have a lot more discussions about critical race theory and how it's being used as a wedge issue. So I'm sure you and I will be talking about it again, Greg. Thank you for being here as well. Um, we're done. We're back again tomorrow. We're going to look at uh, politics uh, and what's happening in the news headlines around politics again tomorrow on the show. Until then, take care. Stay healthy. Uh, think about how you want to use a mask. And if you're not vaccinated, come on, go do it now so you'll be liberated in many, many ways. See you all tomorrow.